Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. In the not-too-distant past, and we're talking about a question of years or maybe a few decades, the biblical view of marriage was dominant in the West. And so it wasn't surprising when Christians talked about uh, the biblical view of marriage. In the West, it was kind of the the gold standard still, and everybody uh, just assumed that that was the the right way to do things. Um, But now the tables have been turned. And now what's being called the traditional view of marriage is under attack, and those of us who uh, promote a what's called a traditional view of marriage are now liable to be to be called uh, called a number of different names. And this is a new situation for Christians in the West, and we might be lamenting it, and we might be uncomfortable with this sort of situation. But we need to understand that it's not a new situation for Christians. It's not a new situation for Christians because in many times and in many places, uh, what's called now the traditional view of marriage, or rather the biblical view of marriage, has been antithetical to what the society practices. So this is not a new situation for Christians, even if it might be a new situation for us. I was reading Tertullian. Tertullian was a church father, and he was in the, the second and third centuries, and he wrote what's called an apology. An apology is not, I'm so sorry, an apology is a defense. And he was writing a defense of the Christian faith, and he was writing to the Greeks and to the Romans. And he said, uh, we are all one uh, as Christians, and we share everything except our wives. And you Romans don't share anything except your wives. And he was being kind of sarcastic with them, but he was saying, obviously, that the Christian view of marriage was diametrically opposed to the society in which he lived. And my concern is not so much about what is happening out there. Uh, That is not my primary concern, but my primary concern is what we are doing in here among us. And rather than protesting the changes in our society, we would do well to live up to what we profess to believe about marriage. Our greatest defense of biblical marriage uh, is to have happy, long-lasting marriages ourselves. And if we will have that, we don't have to march in the streets. 
rather, they will be marching to our door and saying, How are you doing this? We just celebrated 32 years of marriage, and I got some flowers for Sandy, and I was uh, at the checkout line, and the girl was probably not 32 years old yet, uh, who was waiting on me, and so I just said, I was buying flowers, I said, 32 years. And she understood what I was talking about. She said, wow, that's a long time. Now, I'm teaching over at John Knox Village, where the folks, a lot of them are in their 80s and 90s, and when I tell them I've been married for 32 years, they say, oh, you're just getting started. Isn't that sweet? (laughs) But we all stand up and notice, don't we? All of us, whether Christians or non-Christians, whatever, we are all impressed with marriages that last. And we want to know, how did you do it? When we hear of marriages that last 40, 50, 60 70 years until one of the partners goes on. We're all impressed. We stand in awe and envy those happy marriages that last. So that will be our greatest defense, our greatest apology in, in the sense of a defense of the biblical teaching. Now, we're going to look at or, or three things. We're going to look at, first, why get married. Then we're going to look at how to get married. And then we're going to, going to look at how to stay married. So first, why to get married? And here we jumped into a narrative in Genesis, and we jumped in with the first problem in creation. And it's the first time that God pronounces that something is not good. And this is, this is startling because there's this refrain throughout the creation narrative, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and this jumps off the page when it says, then the Lord God said, it is not good. And what was not good? It was not good that the man should be alone. And he was more alone than any human being has ever been. Because we all are born into human society and into families. We have other humans around. He had no other human being around. He was alone. And then there's this curious interlude. God says, I will make a helper fit for him. And then there's this curious interlude where God uh, brings all the animals before, before the man uh, and the man is to name them. And you, you might wonder, what's going on there? Well, a number of things are going on there. He, he's told to rule over the animals, and he's ruling over the animals. He's, he's acting in the place of God as God's agent on the earth, and he's taking dominion and expressing that. But also, when these animals show up before Adam, what do they have? Well, they have partners. And he's the only one around that doesn't have a partner. So Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe come by, and he says, Giraffe, but they have partners, and and Mr. and Mrs. Bear come by, and Mr. and Mrs. Ant, or whatever, and they, they all have partners, and he's the only one that doesn't have a partner. They have mutual help. The animals do, so they have something that that the human lacks. And that's not good, God says. And so, he says, I will make a helper fit or a helper suitable for him. So, why why to get married? Uh, Well, the first reason is to give and receive help. Well, actually, let's, let's go back. It's actually, we could get more basic than that. The first reason is to have lifelong companionship, not to be alone. And we all have companionship. We're born into families and so on, but it's, it's not lifelong. Usually it's not. 
Usually, if things go as they often do, we don't have our parents our entire lives. Uh, we don't uh, live with our brothers and sisters our entire lives. We don't have our aunts and uncles our entire lives. But there is one relationship that is specifically designed to, to solve that question of aloneness until one of the partners goes on, and that's marriage. So that's the first thing, to solve this problem of, of aloneness and to have lifelong companionship. And the second one is, and here's where we get the, the helper fit for him, the helper suitable for him. Him. Um, the second is to give and receive help. To give and receive help. Now, if we go back to verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So the man had a job to do. He was to work the land and to keep it. And he needed help with that job. And if you go back to chapter 1, verse 28, uh, there's another Another uh, piece of homework here for the, for the humans. God blessed them and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, by the way, this is just a parenthetical here. Uh, some people talk about two creation narratives because in, in chapter 1, both the man and the woman are there and then in chapter 2, the man's by himself, and then he creates the woman. What's going on there? It's a flashback. It's going back and filling in details. It's not two creation narratives. They're not contradictory. But here, in chapter 1, they're both given an assignment, and the assignment is, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, etc. How are we going to do that? The only way we can do that, the only way we can multiply is if we have what? If we have a helper, if we have a partner, if we have uh, somebody with whom we can produce children. And so in order to fill the earth, we need marriage. And uh, to this day, marriage is still, even though the society uh, doesn't affirm what we call biblical marriage, it still recognizes that marriage and family is the best thing for producing children who will go out and have dominion in this earth and, and, uh, and, uh, and develop and be responsible and contribute to, to this earth. So it's to have um, a suitable helper to give help, to receive help. And by the way, uh, by the way, this idea of suitable helper, um, the description of the woman as the helper is not, uh, 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 not a denigration of her. It's not critical of her. It's not putting her on a lesser level. Um, because if you think about it, um, if there's a helper and there's a helped, the helper is somebody who has something to contribute. The helped person is the one who needs help, right? And so to call her the helper is to attribute strength to her. It's to say she brings something that he lacks. She brings something that he doesn't have. He needs help, and she's the one that can give it. And by the way, this word helper, usually when it's used in the Old Testament, it refers to God. And so this is not a, 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 a criticism at all. It's an exalted term because God identifies himself as our helper. Why? Because we need help, and he's the one that's powerful enough to give it to us. Now, this word suitable or fit, it's an interesting word. It means opposite to, in front of, or corresponding to. And so it's very accurate when we talk about the opposite sex, because he says, I will make a helper that is opposite to, that is in front of, that is corresponding to. And the way the woman was formed emphasizes the equality between them. Uh, The man came from dirt, came from the dust, but the woman didn't come from dust. The woman came from the man. 
And the way she was made, she was made out of the same stuff, the same substance as the man, emphasizing that she is equal, and also the way she was named. And this is, this is a happy coincidence in English that we have the same sort of wordplay. It says that she was taken out of man, so she was called woman. In Hebrew, uh, because she was taken out of ish, she is called isha. Uh, and so there's this wordplay, same name, a masculine version, a feminine version, same stuff, but opposite to, in front of, corresponding to. Um, and so, uh, in marriage, what we do is we unite ourselves to someone who is our equal and who is also our opposite. It's, a, it's an interesting concept that uh, we unite with our equal, but also somebody who is in front of, corresponding to, who is opposite to us, which presents the... Uh, the delight of marriage, and also some of the challenges of marriage. Now, how to get married. We find that in verse 24 of chapter 2 of Genesis. How to get married. Well, this is, um, this is Moses' comment here. This is really not part of the narrative, because all of a sudden we have a man leaving his father and mother. And so this is a later commentary on what just happened. Um, Adam didn't leave his father and mother, right? Eve didn't leave father and mother. So this is, this is Moses saying, okay, but the, the takeaway for you all later who have parents is this. And he says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And whenever we find in the New Testament that we want to go back to first principles, when they go to Jesus and they ask him about divorce and they ask him about marriage, he goes back to this text and he quotes it. Uh, when Paul in our text in uh, in Ephesians 5, talks about marriage. He goes back to the first principles, and he quotes this again. So this is basic. This is fundamental. And what do we find here? We find three principles here, three steps for getting married. And the first one is leaving father and mother. So this is independence. Independence. So the first thing we need to do in order to form a marriage is to become independent of our parents. And this includes geographical independence, that is, living not with your parents or with your in-laws. Um, it includes economical, and by the way, young couples will, would come to me and they'd want premarital counseling and so on, and I would uh, counsel them and I'd talk, well, what do you plan to do? Where are you going to live? Oh, we're going we're gonna to live with um, her parents for a while. And I'd say... Don't do that. Nothing against her parents at all, really. Nice folk. But, but find a shack. You don't have to have running water. You don't have to have electricity. But just let it be your place. Independence. Move out on your own. Okay. Um, geographical independence. Economical independence. Uh, you need to be able to provide for this new couple that's being formed. Emotional independence. You need to depend on each other more than on others. And also what I would call volitional, volitional that is of the will, volitional independence, decision making. Who makes the, the decisions in this couple? The couple does. The couple does. Others don't. So it's independence. And many marriages never get off the ground because they never, they never cut this umbilical cord. And I've seen that happen far too many times. There's just still too much dependence on mom or too much dependence on dad. And so when things get difficult, there's, instead of, instead of turning to each other, they turn back to their, their families of origin and never really get off the ground. And so until you are in a position to live independently, you are not in a position to get married. That's the first thing, independence. Second principle, second step. 
permanence. It says, leave uh, his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Hold fast to his wife. There are other translations. Unite to his wife. Cleave to his wife. And um, this is permanence. So we have independence and we have permanence. This is what we formalize. And it's interesting. In the Bible, marriages, uh, or rather marriage ceremonies, are rarely mentioned. There is a wedding that Jesus attended, but weddings are, are not mentioned. But every society has come up with a way to formalize this, where it's a, a formal commitment between a man and a woman to commit themselves to hold on to each other, to cleave to each other until death separates them. This is the permanence. And um, without this commitment, marriage can't function. Marriage can't function well without this commitment to stay together no matter what. Why not? Well, if there were an escape clause, when things get difficult, there would be that temptation to take that escape clause. But if there's no way out, what do we have to do? We have to work on our marriage. I read a little bit about Siamese twins, you know, those that are physically connected, and they can't always separate them. They've done amazing things by separating them with more and more medical uh, advances, but um, those Siamese twins that have not been able to be separated, do you know what they typically do? They typically learn to get along with each other. Why do you think they do that? They don't have a choice. They have to. Life would be terrible for both of them if they didn't learn to get along with each other and they don't have an option. And that's how we have to see marriage. We have to learn to get along with each other. Why? Because we don't have a choice. And sometimes people come to me and they'll say, Oh, Pastor, I think we should separate. And, and then I say, Though that's not the option. You have a choice. You have a choice to be happy together or unhappy together. So what are you going to do? I'll help you to learn to be happy together. Uh, the Scriptures teach you to be happy together. But you're, you're choosing a choice that isn't there. Now, some other day we'll talk about divorce. There, there, is, uh, there is teaching in the New Testament about divorce. And so I, I don't want to ignore that. Jesus does talk about it. And so we need to talk about that some other time. But here we're emphasizing marriage. And uh, again, until you're ready to be independent and until you're ready to say, I will be with you no matter what, until death separate, uh, separates us, you're not ready to get married. The third thing is, start living together. Faithfulness. Independence, permanence, faithfulness. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Here's where two bodies start living in the same place. And they join their bodies. Here's the consummation of marriage by joining two bodies as one. And this is, this is interesting. Did you, did you notice when, when Adam wakes up from his slumber and he sees for the first time in his life a woman? He's pretty excited about this. And he said, this at last, in verse 23, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, this, this is kind of, kind of um, gross to mention this sort of thing, but if you were to cut off your finger and it were lying there, what would you do just instinctively? You would pick it up and you'd probably try to put it back in place and get to the hospital as soon as you could. Why? Because it's part of you, and you don't want it to be 
disconnected from you. Now, a strange illustration of marriage, right? But, but there was an operation, and Adam lost a piece of himself, and that piece was taken out and, and made into this woman. And then he saw this that was part of him, and so he wanted his body to be reconnected again. And this explains why men and women are physically attracted to each other, were of the same stuff. In creation, the woman was taken out of the man's body. He wakes up and he wants then to unite his body with hers once again. Because they are one body. Now, um, three steps. And these are in order, actually. Independence, permanence, and then bringing the two bodies together in lifelong faithfulness. That's how to get married. And how to stay married is even more difficult. But in order to see why it's difficult, let's go to chapter 3 of Genesis. In chapter 3, we have the first sin. We have then the curse on the serpent. We have the curse on the woman. And we have the curse on the man's work. And when we think about the curse on the woman, it's Genesis 3.16. Usually we think about pain in childbearing. We think about that part of the curse. But let's read this. It says, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now we usually think about the, the pain in childbearing. Let's focus on that last part of it. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. What's going on here? Well, in order to figure out what's going on here, let's go to chapter 4 of Genesis, verse 7. And here the context is, God is talking with Cain. Uh, Cain was angry because Abel offered a sacrifice before God. Cain offered a sacrifice before God. These were brothers. And Abel's sacrifice was accepted. Cain's uh, sacrifice was not accepted. Cain's angry with his brother. He's angry with God. And God says this to Cain. Verse 7. It says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, in Hebrew and in English, these two are almost exactly parallel. Let's compare these two. So the curse on the woman says, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And he says to Cain, he says, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now let's think about the Cain and the sin. It's crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. In what sense? It wants to do what? It wants to take control of you. It wants to have you. It wants to to dominate you. Sin is at the door and its desire is for you to control you. But it says you will rule over it. So now what do we have? We have a struggle for power. It wants to control you. You must control it. Now go back. These are exactly parallel verbally. And they're right next to each other, chapter 3 and chapter 4. What does it mean? Your desire shall be for your husband. It doesn't just mean that you'll be attracted to him. We already know that from the creation. She already was. It means this. Your desire will be to dominate. Your desire will be to control your husband. But he shall rule over you. This is devastating. 
This is devastating. That sin introduced into the marriage relationship a situation of control and power and mutual effort to dominate the other. That's why marriage is so hard. It's no longer cooperation only, but it's cooperation mixed with sin which introduces competition. But there's a solution. And to get to that solution, we go to the New Testament and the text we read earlier today. Now, this is a fascinating text, extensive. We're not going to study it in detail at this point. But I want you to see how Ephesians 5 is the answer to the curse. How Ephesians 5 sets us free from this mutually destructive competition that sin has introduced into the marriage relationship. And Paul, uh, he, he speaks to the wives first. But most of this text, Ephesians 5, uh, 22 to 33, it's on page 1082. He speaks to the wives first, but he has most to say to the husbands. And usually when I preach on this, I say, Husbands, just plug your ears when I'm reading the section about the wives. doesn't have to do with you. Don't worry about it. Not your concern. Wives, when we get to the husband's part, hey, just plug your ears, hum to yourself, whatever. You don't need to worry about that. Not your job. Not your concern. But we're going to talk about both here. But the focus is on wives doing what they need to do, husbands doing what they need to do. And we're going to start with the husband so that you can see how this is an undoing of the curse. This is a lifting of the competition. He says to the husbands in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing water with the Word so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. Then He quotes... Then he quotes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What is the teaching here? It's a transformation of marriage and a transformation of the husband's role in marriage. The husband, because he's bigger, because he's stronger, he can dominate his wife. And this text is saying, okay, husband, you're, you're the head, you're stronger, you're bigger. So use all of that strength like Christ used His strength for His bride. And, and earlier it says to the wives, it says the husband is the head of the wife. And, and sometimes husbands just want to stop there and say, yeah, got that? I'm the head. And then it goes on and says, yes. And you know what the head does? The head dies. The head sacrifices. The head gives himself for his bride. You're the head. That's right. And it falls on you to use everything you have for the benefit of your wife. To put her first. To put her interests first. And to use every ounce of your strength to show your love for her. And there are two standards here for love. One is Christ. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself. That's our job as husbands. No longer the, the curse of, of, of dominating our wives for our own interests, but rather using all that we have for their interests. But then it says, 
We should also love our wives as our own bodies. And for years I looked at this and I said, isn't that kind of anticlimactic? We're to love our wives as Christ loved the church? That's exalted. And now we're to love our wives as we love our own bodies? That seems to be a lesser standard. But he says, you always take care of your body. Take care of your wife just as well. And then I realized it clicked with this quotation of Genesis 2. He's saying, don't love your wife as if she were your body. He's saying, love your wife because she is your body. The two have become one flesh. She is your body. And love her as you love your own body. Now, I remember preaching on this once and then driving home. And I had one of the best illustrations I've seen of a man using his strength for the benefit of his wife. And I was driving home. This is in Mexico, and we lived a couple miles, a mile from the church, and driving up the hill. And then I passed by on the corner right before our block. A church member was there, and he at the time was up in his 80s, and he was a, a small guy to start with, and he had kind of gotten smaller as he got older. And I think he probably weighed 120, maybe, maybe 130 pounds. His wife was not well. She didn't see well. She didn't walk well. And I drove by, and he was out there in the road, um, uh, on the sidewalk, between the sidewalk and the road, and he had a tree in his hand. And the tree was about maybe three inches in diameter, and he was shaking this tree. And I stopped and I said, whoa, 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 Mr. Peden, what are you doing? He said, well, I want to get rid of this tree, because I want to be able to drive right up to the door, so that my wife can get right out at the door, and this tree is in the way. And it turns out he'd already rammed the tree with his car. <laughs> and he'd gotten it loose and he was trying to take it out. And so I had a, an SUV and I, I said, just, just, just wait. And so I went home just around the corner, hooked it up to my SUV and yanked the thing out of the ground and took it across the street. But I thought, he didn't do that because I just preached this sermon. He's lived this for, I don't know, 50 or 60 years. Using his strength and he didn't have much left but his wife had even less. And he was using whatever ounce of strength he still had to die, to sacrifice, to give himself for his bride. Now, in the light of this, we go back to the wife. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, when you take this out of context... You might say, oh, misogynist, and uh, that Paul, he just was a, a male chauvinist, and just thought that husbands should dominate their wives. We just saw what the husbands are supposed to do. We just saw what we are supposed to do as husbands. We're supposed to give ourselves for our wives. And then Paul says, wives, submit to that. Submit to a man who is giving himself for you. Submit under the, the protection of one who would rather give his own life than allow anything bad to happen to you. Don't rebel against that. Live under that. That's not for your domination. That's for your freedom. That's for your protection. And if we, if we choke over this word submit, we go to the end in verse 33, and Paul sums it up with another word that maybe it's easier for us these days. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, And let the wife see that she respects her husband. So what's he saying to the wives? Wives, instead of trying to tear your husbands down, instead of trying to dominate over them and control them, lift them up and build them up and show them 
respect. Most of the problems in marriage that I encounter are either because of faulty foundations, not following the three steps, starting with independence, and then the permanence, and then the coming together in mutual faithfulness, or it's because both partners are waiting for the other to do his or her job. They come into my study and the wife points at the husband and says, He doesn't love me. And then the, wife, or the husband says, She doesn't respect me. And I say, This is great. So you admit it, right? You, you have the problem there. It's, it's clearly identified. Husband, love your wife. Wife, respect your husband. And usually it's a standoff. I'm not going to do my part until he does his. I'm not going to show her love until she starts respecting me. And they never get ahead. But when one, or preferably both, let down their guard and say, no, we're not back in the curse of Genesis 3.16 anymore. We're not, we're not crouching at the door trying to, to dominate and master. We're, we're in Ephesians 5. And Christ has given Himself for us. And so we, in light of that, let down our guard. Yes, it's scary sometimes. Yes, we make ourselves vulnerable sometimes. But the husband says, I'm going to love my wife. And the wife says, I'm going to respect my husband. If you want a really great wife, here's what you need to do. Love the one you got. And watch how she flourishes. If you want an amazing husband, here's what you need to do. Love the one you have. And watch Him grow. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for the gift of singleness. We thank You for the gift of marriage. And we thank You that to each one You give gifts according to Your design and our good. And I pray for all of us who are currently married. I pray for those who will be married in the future. That we would build solid foundations for our marriage by entering into them with independence and permanence and mutual fidelity. And that You would enable us to live out this beautiful picture of Christ in the church so that the world will look and see our marriages and say, we've heard the Gospel and You've talked to us about the Gospel and now we see it lived out in the beauty of Your marriage. Oh God, we pray that You would do this for our happiness, for our witness to the world for the blessing that we want on our children and for the glory of your great name. And we pray this in the name of Christ, the great husband of the church. Amen.